Hello, and welcome to another EdChoice Chats podcast. My name is John Kristoff. I'm the Senior Research Analyst at EdChoice. And today I am joined by Mike McShane, our Director of National Research at EdChoice. He's here to talk about yet another new paper that has come out and available on the EdChoice website, on our research library, that's what we call it. It's called Surfing the Pipeline. Understanding Pathways into Teaching in Alternative Models of Schooling. Mike, thank you for joining. I'm going to start this by just letting you talk about what the motivation and kind of the premise, the impetus for the paper. Set the scene for the listeners with how they should be approaching this new paper of yours. Thank you very much, John. It's great to be with you as always. Yeah, so the main motivation behind this paper is we're obviously seeing this great growth in school choice policy that's been made over the course of the last two years, but even more specifically over the past, you know, nine months. And this is awesome, right? There's so many new opportunities that are being made available all across the country. And at the same time, there are these fascinating, interesting entrepreneurial educators that are starting up new and different school models. So this might be micro schools, these kind of purposefully small schools that exist. It could be hybrid homeschools, which I've done some writing about before where students attend kind of part-time and work from home for part of the time. It's people that are doing interesting stuff online, trying to rethink online schooling in new and different ways, and all kind of permutations of those things, right? So there's all this interesting stuff that's happening. And for me, you know, there's been a lot of writing recently about some of this big picture stuff, some of the big picture things that are happening in education, how that might be shifting the way we think about public education or what schools look like. And I think all of that is interesting and important, and I contribute to that in ways large and small. But if I were to sort of sum up the way that I think about education or education policy or school choice or schooling or educational improvement or whatever way you want to sort of look at it, is that I tend to think that things succeed or fail, not because of the kind of philosophical or political <laughs> big picture stuff, but rather from the sort of practical and picayune, <laughs> right? These small details, the actual nitty gritty of what is happening day in and day out determines whether stuff succeeds or fails, not these sort of like big picture things, big picture trends that are happening. And so what is the most kind of practical thing that schools do or great schools need? Teachers right? <laughs> great schools need great teachers. And there's a whole mess of research that'll tell you that, but you also have eyes and ears and that will tell you that too, right? Anybody who spent a moment in a school realizes how important great teachers are. And so this paper is basically based on this sort of simple premise, which is if we want more of these new cool educational environments and we want them to be good, they're going to need good teachers. And that raises a whole set of questions, which is sort of like, well, what do teachers need to succeed in these environments? Where can they be prepared to succeed in these environments? And then ultimately what this paper tries to answer is both on the sort of survey side, asking teachers, hey, are you prepared to teach in these environments? Did anything in your preparation prepare you to teach in these environments? And if not, like what can be done? So the paper sort of part surveying teachers to understand their comfort in teaching with new environments, and then also looking at teacher preparation programs and sort of broader education preparation programs to say, like, are you doing anything to prepare teachers to teach in these types of schools? Yeah, that's great. I mean, I think it's an important concept. And 
you talk about how important the small details are in making something as big picture as education work, which is very true. And obviously one of the biggest details, the biggest small detail very much can be, you know, the person who is facilitating the instruction, who's putting all of the resources together. And yeah, I, I think it makes sense. And probably all of our listeners would agree that if you think about education as something that needs innovation or is going to benefit from innovation, trying different things, or at the very least, if there are some kids out there who would benefit from some people thinking outside of the box, if we have resources that help people help the teachers think outside of the box, especially those who are interested in it, that could be huge for you know a more innovative education system. You talked about how this is kind of part descriptive and then part survey work. Do you want to dive into the methods here for a second and just kind of describe what did you do? How did the research part of this work out? For sure. Yeah. So you're right. So it sort of happened in two parts. And the first was actually in the polling that we regularly do that listeners of this podcast would know about. You know, every month we poll a nationally representative sample of Americans in conjunction with Morning Consult. And we episodically do polls of different populations. The population I think that we've polled the most outside of parents is teachers. So I was actually able to add a couple of questions into our most recent survey of teachers, a poll of teachers. So Morning Consult, which again, I think we did a podcast about this. So some people may have already seen some of these data. But yeah, so we added a couple questions asking a nationally representative sample of teachers about their own preparation and their own levels of comfort with alternative learning models. So that's the sort of first half of the research. The second half of it was done with another research partner of ours, Hanover Research. And they actually did all the legwork on this. God bless them. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And they went through the teacher preparation programs of the four states in America with the largest amount of school choice, the ones that we actually identify every, I think it was Drew Cat actually. Shout out Drew Cat. I think a, a piece he did on our blog last year, we sort of went through the numbers. And so it's Arizona, Florida, Wisconsin, and Vermont. And what they did was actually go through like the course catalogs and the listings in sort of federal databases of the courses that they offer and identified any programs, majors, courses, any of that sort of stuff that was done to specifically prepare people to teach in these kind of alternative models. So that was micro schools, homeschools, online schooling, private schooling. Yeah. So looked in those basically those specific areas and said, are you offering any specific courses in those areas or can you major in teaching in those areas or any of that sort of stuff? So those are the sort of two sides of the research project. Perfect. And let's actually start with the survey side of it. The survey questions ask teachers about their preparation process for becoming a teacher. Could you go into a little more detail about what you were looking for as far as specifics about teachers' preparation and what you found? For sure. So we asked two questions. So the first one is, in your college education, graduate education, or other professional development, how much has the instruction and preparation covered the following content, right? So we then gave a list of different types of schools, public district schools, private schools, charter schools, virtual or online education, religious schools, hybrid schools, homeschooling, and micro-schooling. And then teachers were able to sort of rate them, you know, it's covered a lot, some, not much, or not at all. So to that question, probably surprising no one, 
the most popular answer to say that they had been prepared a lot or some was for public district schools. So 86% of the teachers that we polled said that their instruction and preparation covered public district schools, either a lot or some. 60% of them said a lot, 26% said some. It drops off after that. So for private schools, which was the second most popular, it was 52% said that these were covered either a lot or some. For charter schools, it's down to 44%. For virtual, it goes down to 43%. It basically trickles down. The bottom two are homeschooling with 33% and microschooling with 26%. So that's, first, I just like, how much did your preparation cover these topics? This isn't even asking you like, <laughs> like them, dislike them, whatever. Just have you been exposed to these and the degree to which you were? So obviously what we're hearing is teachers are very much exposed to traditional public schools. You know, some are, a majority are exposed to private schools. And then after that, it drops off, which connects us to the sort of second question, which is thinking back on your preparation for going into teaching, how much would you agree with the following statements? And then they had the opportunity to say, I feel prepared to teach in a, and then we would insert the different school types. So I feel prepared to teach in a public district school. I feel prepared to teach in a private school. I feel prepared to teach in a charter school, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And to be honest, the numbers were similar, though to be fair, there wasn't nearly as big of a drop-off from public schools. So obviously public schools were the most popular. 87% of respondents either strongly agreed or somewhat agreed that they felt prepared to teach in a public district school. Private schools similarly came in second place, but were actually much closer. 74% said that they felt they either strongly agreed or somewhat agreed that they were prepared to teach in a private school. It starts to kind of trickle down. About two-thirds, 67% said so for charter schools, 61% for hybrid schools, 59% for virtual and online. And it actually drops down at the bottom, sort of similar to what we saw before. Only 34% said that they felt prepared to teach in a micro school. Yeah, this, I mean, when I saw these numbers come in, it definitely matched the anecdotes that I've heard from people who have either gone through like a typical four-year degree in preparation for the teaching career, or people who have done a transition to teaching program where there's a lot of assumptions made, at least in their programs, about what school is and what school looks like. There's a certain amount of assumptions about, for example, how much curriculum development is going to be your responsibility that you know, when you actually go out to these different schools, even different district schools, a lot of the times, depending on what your school district looks like, it can vary quite a bit. So it's kind of fascinating how consistent that story about assumptions go into it versus what the reality already is as far as diversity, of what the K-12 education system is. Totally. I'm glad you brought that up because that does, you know, raise a point that I want to make here and that the purpose of this paper is not to sort of bash teacher preparation programs. I get for most parts of the country, like it's perfectly rational if, you know, you're in a state that doesn't have charter schools or has a very small number of charter schools, or, you know, you're looking at your teachers and 95% of them are going to teach in public schools. I totally get orienting your program towards where the lion's share of your teachers are going to go. I totally get that. That's why partially in the sort of second half, which I imagine we'll talk about soonish, we focused on these very choice-rich states. Because to me, it's more so, 
looking at places where these things are growing. Like I said, the purpose of this paper is not to bash teacher preparation programs, but rather to sort of highlight the opportunity that's there and to say, hey, I get why within the last five or 10 years, you haven't done this, but the facts on the ground are changing. And I think you actually have an opportunity to change the offerings that you're doing because like, I get it. I totally, when I saw those figures, I was like, that's a perfectly rational response from historical enrollment patterns of students and historical sort of employment placement of teachers. Like I totally get that's why you would do that. So I want to be extra crystal clear. I'm not out here trying to bash teacher preparation programs, but rather saying the facts on the ground are changing and an opportunity is developing. That's very fair. I guess with that, then, you know, as you said, it makes sense to then, if we're going to look at what teacher preparation programs currently exist, it does make sense to look in the more choice-rich areas. You include Wisconsin, which in addition to having, you know, a high percentage of students, you know, going to charter schools, going to private schools, using the voucher programs that are there compared to other states, you know, Wisconsin was also the first to have a voucher way back in 89, 90. Vermont might surprise some people on this list, but they've actually been using public dollars to send kids to private schools since the 19th century through their town tuitioning program. So Vermont actually very much a historical part of the school choice movement here. And then Florida and Arizona, if you're listening to this podcast, you know the relationship between school choice and those states for some years now. So looking at those states and teacher preparation programs there, what kind of alternative education exposure or preparation did you find there? So we looked basically at, and this is an important caveat that should be in there, is university-based teacher preparation. There are alternative certification programs. There are others that are sort of outside the scope of this. So we looked strictly at university-based. So in Florida, Wisconsin, Arizona, Vermont, so the universe of things we looked at, I think, in Florida, they examined 163 different universities. In Wisconsin, it was 67. In Arizona, it was 62. And in Vermont, it was 17. And again, they looked for examples of courses, programs, et cetera, related to micro-schooling, online schooling, charter schooling, and private schooling, basically what they were looking for across those four. So the easiest one to summarize is Vermont. Our friends at Hanover found zero programs or courses or majors in any of those areas. Nothing in micro schools, nothing related to online schooling, nothing related to charter schooling, nothing related to private schooling. You know, probably if we were thinking sort of a close second, not nothing, but close to it would be up north in Wisconsin. They found one program related to online schooling and one program related to private schooling. Now it jumps up from there. I would say probably the next one, if we're thinking about it, is in Florida. Not surprisingly, probably given the long tradition that Florida has with online education, with the Florida Virtual School and others has been around forever, they actually found five programs and 28 courses related to online schooling. And they actually found a, a full degree as well as a program in private schooling. And then in the end, the sort of last one that probably had the most diversity of offerings, even though, again, the overall numbers are quite low. If we think about each of those universities and all of the majors that it potentially has, would be Arizona. They found in Arizona a degree related to microschooling, three programs and two courses related to online schooling. They found two degrees, five programs and seven courses, and then related to private schooling, two degrees, two programs and five courses. So that you saw, you can look at it one of two ways, which is to say that the overall numbers are low. 
particularly given how enrollment patterns are changing. But the flip side is that things are actually happening, that there are universities that are investing in this, that are creating these types of programs. So depends if you're a sort of glass half full or glass half empty type of person, but that's what they found. For sure. Do you want to dive into, you know, we don't have to dwell on this too long, but were there any particular programs as, as you were diving into details or courses that you thought were particularly interesting? So for example, for me, one that was especially interesting was the fact that there's a university in Arizona that already has specifically a micro school training. And to me, that seems very adaptive and something that I, I wasn't sure I was going to see any of that, but that exists. Were there any that jumped out to you that were particularly interesting or surprising? Yeah. So the story in Arizona, I think is a really interesting one. And it's an institution worth highlighting. That's Arizona State University offers these because Arizona State offers ASU prep or sort of sponsors ASU prep, which is a big charter school network of like 7,000 kids, I think, across its various campuses. And it's really interesting on ASU prep's website, they have this interesting kind of like semicircle where they break down their different school offerings that are under the ASU prep umbrella. And they have all the way from five day a week traditional, what you sort of think of as like a traditional charter school, all the way around to a fully digital online five day a week model. And they kind of have everything in between. They have like four days at home and one day at school, three days, two days, two days, three days, one day, four day, et cetera. And one group of that are micro schools. I think they call them learning pods, but they're basically micro schools. So what they have is kind of like a lab school type model where they're affiliated with the university and therefore you can place your teachers in those types of schools and you can create coursework around them. I think the whole, and I try to highlight it in the conclusion, I think the whole ASU prep model is a really interesting way of doing this, both on the schooling side and others. So I think that's one that's definitely lots of other places could totally learn from. Yeah, and I don't think it's a coincidence, you know, again, if I had my researcher hat on, I, I think, you know, okay, we need to dive into this further. But, you know, looking at this from a bird's eye view, it's not a coincidence that Arizona also has the largest and one of the most successful charter ecosystems in the whole country, I think. If you're going to invest in a lot of programs there that kind of help, there's a network and a development network there that other states don't have. It both increases the quality, perhaps, of teachers who are entering the charter ecosystem. But then it also, if there's ever somebody who's going through your program that wants to start their own charter school, they know that the charter sector exists and kind of how it works a little more, again, in comparison to maybe some other states, they can become an innovator of their own, you know, and develop their own school, their own curriculum, things like that, you know, a bird's eye view, there can't be a coincidence there, I feel like. So overall, then, you said that you can either look at this as a glass half full, glass half empty, but I'll put you on the hot seat. What is your impression then of how to look at these numbers? I know you said that you were going into this project with a sense of, okay, if we're going to be innovative, if we're going to pursue these pathways of alternative education models, we need a better teacher pipeline. We need a robust teacher pipeline for alternative education. So you looking at these results, how do they strike you in relation to that goal? Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing that strikes me, I'll do the sort of negative and then the positive, because I think both are sort of true at the same time. The negative thing is just, I think 
on behalf of people trying to start these schools and recruiting teachers, how much time, money, resources they will have to spend to get teachers to where they need them to be, right? If teachers, and again, this is a, sort of the assumption that they're coming out of traditional pipelines. There's all stories. If you talk to people who operate these schools, they're oftentimes bringing in teachers from non-traditional backgrounds. And I get that. Part of the sort of logic of this paper is that like that might kind of be unsustainable. And then if like these sectors are going to grow to be big, you probably want a little more stable pipeline than like kind of ad hoc, just finding, you know, the closest person to hand. So all of that having been said, the negative stories, I just think about like, man, all of these teachers are being prepared to teach in one type of school. These new types of schools are emerging. So what do those schools have to do? Well, they're going to have to provide professional development. They're going to have to retrain themselves. And so when are you doing that? Are you doing that in the summertime? Are you doing it afterwards? You know, whatever. That's money. That's time that could otherwise be spent making your school more awesome, right? And that other types of schools don't have to do. The traditional public schools don't have to do that. A lot of times as you hear from the private schools or more sort of generic or sort of standard charter schools might not have to do. What you get out of a teacher preparation program is ready to go in that environment. So I'm just like, man, what waste and how much we're getting vouchers and ESAs and others to families. But some portion of that is kind of like a deadweight loss of, and I don't know if I'm exactly using that term correctly. I'm using it more in the literary sense, perhaps, but it's a loss of you know, these schools shouldn't have to be doing this. Other schools aren't. So it's a problem. there. So that's the negative case is just a lot of waste here, people's time, people's resources, people's energy to do that. Right. And it's, you know, the individual teachers, like I spent four years learning to do one thing and I want to do something different. And so I have to start over. So anyway, now I keep thinking, though, I just see this big flashing opportunity out there. If I am an enterprising dean of an ed school, particularly in a state where school choice is growing, so we think of all of these states that just passed universal ESA programs or other, or where these networks of micro schools are growing or hybrid homeschools are growing. And let's say, let's say you're not like the flagship university of the state, right? Where, you know, we're talking about demographic trends and others where maybe fewer people are going to enroll in college. You could be looking at some kind of rough financial situations, either you're already facing them or you may be facing them in the near future. You need to find ways to differentiate yourself. You need to offer things that other people aren't. Like, this seems to me like a great idea, right? Hey, we're going to not just do the same thing that everybody else is doing, but maybe slightly worse than them <laughs> or slightly better, right? But basically do the same thing as other people. We're going to do something different. We're going to create pathways to prepare teachers to do this. And again, it doesn't even necessarily have to be like a whole major, but we're just going to say, hey, you can minor in online education or you can minor in, you know, micro schooling or whatever, any of those sorts of things. Take a few courses. I would be willing to wager that most school leaders would be totally cool with that. Like if you've taken like two or three courses in this, I think we're good. You know, I don't think it, it even has to be like a whole thing, but just recruiting some of those people to participate in that. I just see this huge opportunity. And I think that like we see with ASU prep and those, like those opportunities only linger for so long before someone thinks about it. And maybe they just haven't thought about it yet. Part of what I hope to do with this paper is when people say like, oh, wow, that actually sounds like a good idea. We should do that. Yeah, I think you're definitely right about the opportunities here. And if you are running a school of education in a choice rich area, I mean, I don't know what kind of pressures you have about who teaches what, but 
I can guarantee you that there are some alternative education leaders in your state who would love to share their experiences and knowledge so that, you know, the kids that you're teaching, the future teachers can stand on their shoulders, so to speak. It's a very positive sum and environment there. So just some thoughts that direction. Listening to this podcast, we definitely have school choice advocates. We might have some people who are running their own alternative schools, private schools, micro schools, charter schools, et cetera. We might have some state legislators listening. I get clues to that sometimes. Are there any actionable steps that you would want the listener to this podcast to think about either themselves encouraging, depending on where they are in life, or uh, just how they should be thinking about this problem? Yeah, I mean, I think advocates can really think about you know, especially in states that have public universities that get public dollars, they have to go before the legislature and, you know, legislatures have oversight over them, right? Or, you know, state boards that oversee them or higher education authorities or others. And so I think there's a really good opportunity for advocacy to talk to whether it's a sort of regulating agency or policymakers or others and say, hey, are you are you asking about this? Are you saying when someone comes before your committee and is testifying, hey, this is what we want more money? or we want money to be funded this year, like someone asking a question like, hey, what are you doing in teacher prep? You know, we passed these choice laws in the last couple of years. Are you all doing anything to help meet those needs? Why not? You know, so I think like on that policy side, there's definitely sort of leverage that policymakers have. And I think advocates pointing that out to those legislators would be very good. And I think, look, I think school leaders, educators reaching out to teacher preparation programs in their area saying, hey, you know, we've got this network of schools. You all every year are trying to place teachers. We would be a place where you would place teachers. Can we talk? Can we maybe brainstorm courses that we could offer together that, you know, maybe it would be team taught with a faculty from the school as well as someone who operates a micro school or something like that. Like, let's put a course or two together on how to figure that out. So I think there's lots of opportunities of people choosing to sort of work together on this. And again, maybe the micro school says, look, if you want to place student teachers, we'll take a student teacher and work them through. So I think there's lots of opportunities for partnerships and a bit of leverage, particularly when it comes to things like public universities. That's super helpful. And I'll just repeat everyone, if you want to see the full paper for yourself and read about some details, some more examples of alternative education training that does exist now, you can check out Mike's paper in the EdChoice Research Library right now. Surfing the Pipeline, Understanding Pathways into Teaching in Alternative Models of Schooling. Mike McShane, thank you so much for coming on the podcast to share your thoughts and your findings from this research. If you are newish to this podcast and haven't been so familiar with us or with Mike's research before, definitely look him up. He is one of, if not the kind of research leader and people who are thinking about these kinds of questions as far as alternative, innovative education and his experience and knowledge and excitement about this new era of education is really great. He's got a lot of great resources. In the meantime, thank you very much for tuning into this episode. And thank you to Jacob and Eve, our uh, lovely podcast producers for making this all sound good and working with all technical issues of producing this podcast. And thank you to the listeners for joining us. And we'll see you again next time on Ed Choice Chats.